Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I am so glad you're here. After you listen to this episode, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share. I see that so many of you are listening to the Daily Affirmations episodes, and I hope that they continue to be tools that you can use for support, encouragement, and strengthening your daily meditation practice. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at Love Letters and Mixtapes. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this podcast. Snake River Roasting Company is an organic coffee roaster located in the beautiful mountains of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Not only do they roast award-winning coffees, but their mission and commitment to supporting the rights of women farmers around the world are just incredible. I start every single morning with a cup of their Fire on the Mountain organic coffee blend. And if you're anything like me, and you're particular about what you eat and drink and how it's sourced, Snake River Roasting Company has a free shipping code for you to give their delicious coffee coffee a taste. Head to their website, snakeriverroastingco.com, and use the code COFFEELOVE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic coffee orders. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week, we are continuing the conversation about adult children of alcoholics, addicts, and dysfunctional families. And if you haven't done so already, I would suggest listening to the previous episode, which was episode 13, for some foundational information on this topic. And if you listen to that episode and you felt yourself relating to it while also being irritated by some of the information that came through, I just want to take a moment and say that that's actually a really normal response when we receive information about sensitive topics and when we begin to learn a little bit more about ourselves on a feeling level versus a factual level. You know, when something sounds true to us, we have a bit of a visceral experience. And I guess that's part of the reason why they always recommend when you do start attending 12-step meetings that you attend at least six meetings at first before making a decision if the group is right for you. I know that when I ran support groups in LA, I would always say that to new group members and they wouldn't really understand it until they were in it. Because in the first meeting, you generally relate really well, but you do get irritated. And it's very confronting to hear strangers talk about the things that are most private and intimate for you, things you would never have shared with anyone else. And your ego rises up a bit. You know, it wants to convince you that you don't need this help, you don't need these people, you can do this on your own. You know, you don't need support. You don't need to relate to anyone. They don't really understand you. Oh, I'm not quite as bad as this person. You know, this person cheated on their spouse. I've never done that. It will tell you all sorts of things to get you out of the room. You know, your mind is trying to get you alone and kind of cut you off from the pack because then it has a lot of control over you, over your thoughts, over your behavior. And It really loses its power to tell you a story when you're in community and you're being present with other people. So while you initially might 
sort of reject the idea of doing some of this work publicly or sharing about it in community, just know that sometimes that's the exact medicine you need. And it has to be counterintuitive to what your body and your mind is telling you. And you don't have to take my word for it. You get to create your own experience with all of this. And whether your journey begins today, I had many people reach out to me last week and say, I just attended my first online adult child meeting and my mind was blown. Um, Or whether it takes you years to kind of walk this path. It's always there for you. It's a broad highway. There's a lot of room for everyone with their own experiences to walk through. You don't have to fit a certain mold. I know that I certainly didn't, and I still benefited from it. So I wanted to take a look at a 2019 study by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And the findings of this study were that one in five adult Americans has lived with an alcoholic relative while growing up. And in general, these children are at greater risk for having emotional problems than children whose parents are not alcoholics. Alcoholism runs in families, and children of alcoholics are four times more likely than other children to become alcoholics themselves. Most children of alcoholics have also experienced some form of neglect or abuse in the home. And what I liked about this study was that it validated what so many of us have felt in our gut or in our intuition that this is a common situation, that it's not just our parent or our family that something was deeply wrong within. No, other people experience this too. And if other people experience this too, then other people have also healed from it and worked through it. And that's a way to offer us hope. Because if it's just us and we're, you know, on our island by ourselves in pain, there seems as if there's no solution. But the fact that one in five people have grown up in a home like this lets me know that someone probably came before me who figured out how to navigate it and how to heal and how to process it. And so that's where we're picking up today. Uh, We're looking at how do we process some of these things Because a child being raised by a parent or caregiver who's suffering from alcohol abuse or addiction or some type of dysfunction probably has a variety of conflicting emotions that need to be addressed in order to mature and evolve through their lifespan and and sort of navigate future problems because problems are also a part of life. Very often you'll hear me say on this podcast, life on life's terms. And I know that that's irritating to some people because it, you know, does sound very 12-step-ish, but it is. It's life on life's terms. I don't always get to decide what happens to me, but I do get to develop the tools and the muscle memory to work through whatever problem comes up. And so I get to make a choice. Do I do that ahead of time and slowly develop these skills, or do I wait to a crisis moment have my nervous system completely break down and sift through all of my self-sabotaging behaviors before I tap on something that might work. So some of the things that adult children deal with on a pretty regular basis are guilt, anxiety, embarrassment, inability to have close relationships, confusion, anger, depression, and isolation. So let's unpack some of these. You know, how does the guilt show up? The guilt shows up as 
the child may be seeing themselves as the cause of the problem. You know, maybe if I had just been better, quieter, smarter, more perfect, none of this would be an issue. You know, maybe if I wasn't so expensive to take care of, maybe if I didn't have so many problems, maybe if I did better in school. And these disproportionate feelings of guilt, and the word disproportionate is pretty important because guilt is a common feeling, but almost magnified, almost grandiose feelings of guilt that wouldn't really make sense to an outsider looking at the situation, but tends to be the first thing that the child goes to. Then there's the anxiety, the constant worry about the situation in the home, the fear that the child may be hurt, the fear that the parent's going to hurt themselves or someone else, uh, fear of violence, fear of financial insecurity, fear of, you know, are we going to have food to eat tonight? All of these things come up. And I've heard a lot of parents come into groups and say, oh, my kid has no idea what's going on. And man, I have to tell you, (laughs) kids are psychic, okay? They're psychic sponges. They know more about what's going on in the house than anyone else. The problem is kids don't have the vocabulary and they don't have our mature points of reference to understand how something is happening in relation to something else. And if you are a parent and something very stressful or scary or dysfunctional is happening in your home and you're telling yourself, oh, my kid doesn't know. They're fine. No, (laughs) they they definitely know something's wrong. And there's sort of a, a specific type of pain that goes on when you integrate all of these things without language because you don't know how to sort it out in your mind. So if you only feel it in your body and it's always attacking your nervous system, but you don't really have the language for it and no one is validating your experience, just imagine how that weaves through your life and how that shows up in adulthood. Embarrassment is another thing that happens for adult children. Um, You know, you have this feeling growing up in this type of home that there's something wrong in your house and it's a secret. And if anyone was to find out, everything would fall apart. And that shame can be very private. Um, It can be very nuanced or it could be really public. You can have a parent who's acting out all of the time in public and just embarrassing you and scaring you and scaring other people. And you internalize this embarrassment because you're a child and energetically, whether it's healthy or not, you are an extension of your parents. And that's maybe how you see yourself. And it also might be how your parent sees you, which is a whole other episode. But this embarrassment, even if you didn't do something wrong, that you are somehow representative or responsible for how your parent is behaving. And then you'll see those feelings carry over into adult relationships. If you have a partner who's doing something similar to what your parent did and you take on their embarrassment the embarrassment that really does truly just belong to them, then becomes something you have to process and work through. Another one is the inability to have close relationships. The child has been disappointed repeatedly by parental behavior, parental drinking, parental thinking, and it becomes really challenging to trust other people. 
So how does this come up when we're talking about codependency in these relationships for adult children? Well, codependency is often misunderstood as just deep, loving, profound intimacy, like I just lose myself in another person. It's not really that. Codependency is a little bit about manipulation, and it's saying I'm going to kind of hide myself and transform myself into being someone who's experiencing or believing that they're experiencing all of your emotions. And it's sort of losing yourself and your identity in order to create this bond with another person. But I don't know that it's intimate. I don't know that it's honest. And so that inability to have close relationships even comes up in codependency. And in these homes, there's always a lot of confusion too because there's chaos, right? There's chaos with drinking and drug use and dysfunctional behavior. You never know what schedule you're going to be on that day. You never know if you're going to get to school on time, if you have lunch, if you have clean clothes. You don't know who's picking you up after school or if you have to lie to a teacher and walk home by yourself and expose yourself to all of these situations that are really anxiety-inducing. And there's so much confusion that rises to the surface. And one of the phrases I like to use when I'm explaining this to someone else is it's sort of like someone telling you the sky isn't blue and how much confusion that creates. You know, you're standing outside, you're looking at a blue sky and you're just observing what's happening in front of you and someone's telling you, no, the sky isn't blue. I don't know what's wrong with you, why you're seeing it that way. That comes up a lot for the adult children of alcoholics. It's really hard to be in a situation where someone is constantly telling you, you don't know what you know. And that brings us back to what I said earlier, that children are these psychic sponges. They know what's going on. So even if I can't verbalize what's happening in a household, if there's sexual abuse or physical abuse or even verbal abuse or neglect... A child can't really put words to that, but they know it in their body. They know something is wrong. So when a parent meets that and says, oh, no, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. Just go to bed. You're creating pathways of confusion. The adult child in their adult life will see this happen time and time again. They'll be in a situation where there's red flags, and instead of taking a cue to turn the other way, they're going to sit there and kind of wonder how red or what shade of red each of the flags are. Um, And that's sort of that confusion that says, am I right to feel this way? Am I allowed to feel this way? Are my observations correct? You know, is my thinking correct? Am I making assumptions? Am I being judgmental? That was my favorite one. Everyone my entire life told me that I was being judgmental. And I wasn't. I'm very observant. (laughs) I just let you know when the sky is blue and when I'm uncomfortable and I have agency about myself and I remove myself from situations that are not healthy for me. That's not judgment. That is discernment. And discernment is one of the things that are taken away from children in alcoholic or, you know, addicted or dysfunctional households. Their discernment is robbed. And it's a really hard fight to get it back as an adult. Anger is next on the list, and these feelings can be pretty complicated. So I want to touch on a few things. There's the anger at the parent who's suffering from addiction or dysfunction, right? 
Why can't they act right? Why can't they stop? Why can't they just go to work? Why are they hurting me? But then there's also the anger at the non-alcoholic parent for their lack of boundaries, support, and protection. Because that's actually the parent's job. It's both parents' job. One is failing outright, and it's very clear. But then the child is looking at the other parent and saying, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you doing something? And again, that can be perceived as judgment or it can be perceived as the child standing up for themselves, even internally saying, I deserve more. I deserve better. I deserve safety. I don't deserve neglect or abuse. So anger can be a really powerful tool, although it can also be a pretty profound character defect. But what I appreciate about anger is that it's an alarm that goes off that lets you know something is not right. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right. It means something about the situation is incorrect and I need to look at it. And it's interesting in alcoholic homes because there's very little opportunity for children to express their anger in a safe way. Um, Because if they do, I mean, first of all, the household is unsafe in a lot of ways on a good day. So if the child is having a tantrum and acting out, they put themselves in even more danger. So what does that tell us as adults about how to process our anger? When does it come out? When are we safe to be angry? How does that anger get shared with others? Because there's ways to express your anger. I mean, I don't think I've raised my voice in 20 years, but I've been pretty angry and I can just look someone in the eyes and just say, this is how I feel. This is what happened. This is what I want you to do. But what if you feel as if you are not allowed to express your anger, that there's no space for anyone to receive or hear you. It tends to bottle up. And because you're not expressing it on a regular basis in a healthy way in controlled environments, it can be unleashed at the most inopportune moments and sometimes the wrong people. And anger is a tricky thing in the alcoholic home also because it's not safe to be angry at the alcoholic parent or the non-alcoholic parent, right? There's no safety. If you're angry at the alcoholic parent, they'll probably throw something at your head. If you're angry at the non-alcoholic parent, they're probably dealing with their own rage, and that's not safe for you because they're your only sober caretaker, so you can't get mad at them. So how do we express our anger as adults when this is the pattern that we've gotten used to in childhood? We have to find people that we feel safe being angry with. What does that look like? It's different for everyone, but maybe that looks like a loving partner. And that's our first safe space. And we don't know what to do with those feelings of safety and we lash out. What if that's someone who's actually trying to help us? And again, nothing I say is a given. It doesn't have to happen that way. I'm just giving examples that I've seen in my own life and friend groups and relationships and experiences. And I always relate anger probably to what I've noticed in adolescence. And that's not to stigmatize adolescents, but they definitely have a particular dance with anger. And rightly so. They're expressing themselves for the first time really as individuals and anger comes out. It's a very accessible emotion sometimes. But 
Adolescents are most often angry with the people they feel safest with. If you're a consistent, caring, loving parent, you might find yourself shocked one day that your 16-year-old is rebelling against you and fighting you about everything. And part of the reason they do that is because they know they're safe with you. They know that they can act out and then dial it back. They know that you'll forgive them. They know that you're not going to revoke safety and basic human needs for expressing these conflicting emotions that they have. So that's something to look at as we're looking at the adult children as they navigate their own feelings of anger. Who do they feel safest with? When does it come out? Does it come out on a regular basis in moments that warrant it in restrained and healthy ways? Or is it explosive, disproportionate, and almost grandiose? Just something to think about. Depression and isolation are the last two on this list, and I almost wanted to speak about them together because I feel as if they're pretty intertwined. If your parent is not taking care of you, if your home is not safe, it makes sense to be depressed. It's really okay because that's you appropriately responding to your situation. And there's a feeling that nothing's going to change, especially when you're a child or an adolescent and you're in this situation and you really don't have the freedom or the agency that you'll have as an adult. And even when you do get that, once you leave the home, it's really hard to let go of those feelings. And I guess the feeling would be helplessness and hopelessness that is really associated with these situations. It can be really challenging to sort of dig your way out of that and think that, you know, something good might happen because that would have harmed you as a child. If you had constantly thought, oh, something amazing is just about to happen, it's just around the corner, that would have been harmful for you. But as an adult, when you have all of this freedom and you can make decisions and create the life you want, that's actually very helpful. So processing that depression is really important. And isolation, that's the combination of the shame and the fear and the depression of growing up with alcoholism and addiction. Because as children, we can only guess what normal behavior is. We maybe see it on TV or we see it in our friends' homes or we hear about it in school. But there's this profound feeling of being different from other people. And it really makes it difficult to function and connect in a healthy manner. And that results in a feeling of profound isolation. I used to attend the moth pretty often when I lived in New York City and when I lived in Los Angeles. And I've spoken about it on this platform previously. And it is a storytelling nonprofit. It really focuses on the art of storytelling and connection of the common human experience. And I remember seeing the moth in New York City in Soho one day and the MC got up and she was just talking about people who live in New York City and she was talking about how we all have the same dream. And if you ever lived in New York City and had like a studio apartment, you'll understand this dream. She said that we all dream that we found a secret hidden room in our apartments that we never knew was there. And we find this like secret hidden door in our dream and we open it up and magically our apartment is like twice as large. And we're like, why wasn't I using this room? This could be my office or my bedroom. And the way that relates to this discussion of depression and isolation is that 
for me, and I'm happy to share about just for me, depression and isolation were that secret room that always existed in my dream. And it was a room I could always go back to. You know, you're scaring me, you're disappointing me, you're upsetting me, I'm stressed. Guess what? I can isolate and I can sort of spiral into my own depression because it's this secret hidden room no one knows about, but I know that I can always tap into. And so part of doing this work in community or even in individual therapy is not so much to punish yourself for having that room. Because there was a time when that room saved my life to be able to just sort of depress my nervous system so I didn't have to pay attention to what was happening to me, saved me. But as an adult, it can keep me from experiences and relationships and awareness and maturity. And so these tools that you gain in these programs or, like I said, in therapy actually help you to slowly close the door on that room and to not return to it so often. You're creating other tools to tap into and use and defense mechanisms that are a little bit more age-appropriate and healthy for you. Last week, I read through the typical characteristics of adult children, and most of them included things that pointed to enmeshment, codependency, and fear of abandonment. And if you're anything like me, Maybe when you first heard that list, the characteristics did not automatically seem to align with your behaviors. And again, that's like what I said at the beginning of the episode. That's your mind saying, you don't belong here. Just let me get you alone and then I can talk to you and I can tell you what you need. But I'm glad that that didn't happen. I'm glad I stayed and was like, well, these people seem to know what they're doing. I'm going to hang out for a little bit longer and see how it goes. Because I initially struggled to make the connection. I was completely focused on facts instead of feelings because I'm not codependent. I'm off in outer space most of the time. I'm fiercely, self-sabotagingly independent. I think I change my phone number every three months, and I'd say 99% of the people in my life have no idea where I live. So codependency hasn't really been an issue of mine, but I have profound self-sabotaging fears of abandonment. And the way they manifest doesn't have to match everyone else, but the feeling is what is important. So one of my greatest character defects is my isolating behavior and my hyper-independence. And you can look at that and say, well, how does that relate to a list of characteristics that are pointing to people who are deeply codependent? And it's because we're focusing on the end game. We're not focusing on how we get there. Our end game is the same. I don't want to be seen, I don't want to be known, and I don't want to be disappointed, and I don't want to be abandoned. So my defense mechanism is to become all of these things first before anyone else can do that to me. And that is same, same, but different from people who engage in deeply self-sabotagingly codependent behavior. So as we're talking about defense mechanisms and whether that be self-sabotaging independence or whether that be codependency, I do think it's important to talk about trauma bonds briefly. And I can do a whole episode on trauma bonds, and I probably will because it's pretty important and not enough people are talking about that. But trauma bonds are the emotional bonds with an individual that arise from a recurring cyclical pattern of abuse perpetuated by intermittent reinforcement through rewards and punishment. 
The process of forming a trauma bond is referred to as trauma bonding. The essence of trauma bonding is loyalty to someone who is destructive. And what does that look like? That looks like probably something similar to what happened in your childhood home with a parent who was suffering from addiction and you never knew what was coming into your house that night. You never knew if they were going to punish you or they were going to smother you with love or they were going to ignore you and not feed you for three days or they were going to go on a bizarre shopping spree. Never knowing. And it's that constant fight to almost tap into an algorithm, right? I'll use a word that we're all familiar with now. An algorithm of reward and punishment and trying to say, well, if I do this thing, am I going to get this result? And it's very fear-driven because the stakes are pretty high when you grow up in an alcoholic home. And the problem is that that doesn't really work in these situations, but it's our effort and our outpouring of energy that makes us think it's going to work. So I'm going to read some of the characteristics from trauma-bonded relationships, and you tell me if they sound anything similar to what it's like growing up in an alcoholic home. Your partner consistently breaks promises. You keep having the same damaging fights that are never resolved. You are blamed for everything in the relationship and face constant demands for changes in your behavior or actions. You try unsuccessfully to get your partner to change addictive or abusive behavior. People around you are disturbed by your partner's behavior towards you, but you are not, or you make excuses for it. You don't trust your partner or even really like who they are, but you feel stuck in the relationship. And if you do finally leave, you deeply miss this person or somehow find yourself sucked back into the relationship. And I'm sharing this because it's important to just not only focus on what we experience as children, but how it shows up in our adult lives today and when and where it might be an issue. Because it's easy to sort of renegotiate the past in our own mind and be like, my parents did the best they could. Everything was fine. You know, I turned out okay. I hear that all the time. Um, People would come in at a breaking point in crisis counseling and they would say, you know, I turned out fine look at me. I've got a great job. I have a house. I have this, I have this, everything's fine. They're like screaming at me. I'm like, yeah, you seem great. You know, (laughs) seems like it's really working out. And I've done that too. I'm not making fun of anyone. I've done that too. You know, how do you know an adult child of an alcoholic is in trouble? If they use the word fine, I'm fine. Everything's fine. We're fine. Things are going fine. (laughs) Fine means their life is literally on fire and they can't talk to anyone about it. So let's dive into some tools because I actually think that that's a really important part to focus on. One of the first and most accessible tools is something really simple, and that is the serenity prayer. And I've heard people distort this over time or try to discount it or try to deconstruct it and make it sound like it doesn't make sense. And man, I'm not going to fight anyone. Sure, if that's what you need to do, go for it. But it's actually very helpful for those of us who grow up in an alcoholic home because It's kind of a pathway to healing, and it's very simple. So the serenity prayer goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So why is that important? 
Um, you know, I've heard people say, oh, you shouldn't accept things that, you know, you can't change. You can actually change them, you know, and, and go off on that. No, for people who grew up in these households, we have to accept our limited resources and power in the agency as children. Because when we accept that that was our role and that's what happened to us, we then have the ability to make a decision to change the things that we don't want to do in our adult life. And then we have the wisdom or discernment to know the difference. You know, if I grew up in very unhealthy relationships, but what I deeply yearn for is a close, intimate relationship, I have to then call it by its right name, have a vision for something better, and know the difference. So emotional sobriety is something that I actually talk about quite often, and I did a whole episode on it on this podcast. It's episode two. You can always go back and listen to that one. And the way I like to think of emotional sobriety is the ability to meet calamity and opportunity with serenity. And I know that there can be a lot of confusion around that. You know, people can say, but I'm an empath, but I'm this, but I'm that, you know, or this person's not in touch with their emotions. So they, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. And when we're talking about emotional sobriety, we're really saying that nothing outside of me can change the core of who I am. And that's where the emotional sobriety work comes in. Because very often in any type of 12-step program or addiction, you're going to hear people talking about how their outsides don't match their insides and how challenging that is. Because there's a certain level of emotional homeostasis that we all need to function. So even for me, on my outsides as a kid or as a young adult, I looked fine. I mean, I looked sad. I'm sure a lot of people would say that. <laughs> I looked kind of sad. But it didn't match my insides, which were literally on fire with like a, a psychedelic, swirling, loud sort of death metal soundtrack. You know, I guess that's a good way to describe it. There was a lot going on on my insides. And on the outsides, I just smiled and I showed up and I did a good job. I was the most reliable employee. I was the best student. I was a very emotionally distant girlfriend, but, you know, I made dinner. <laughs> so I felt like I was doing a good job. But um, the outsides not matching the insides is, you know, something that I think all adult children deal with because that's how we get through the world. We make our outsides look good because we don't want you to look at us too much. We don't want you to see what's going on on the inside. And I'm the first person to say that I think that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is probably the most important book written in the last hundred years. The spiritual lessons inside this book apply not only to people suffering every type of addiction, but also to the people who love them, the children who grew up with them, and the people who, as adults, are just trying to put one foot in front of the other and navigate life. So here is a little excerpt from How It Works in the big book. How It Works. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. 
life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Just that chapter alone sums up so much of what we're talking about, you know? His motives are good. Aren't my motives always good? <laughs> Aren't all of our motives always good as we're sitting there renegotiating the past and telling ourselves, oh, I'm a really good person. See, I meant to do this because of this. And this is why I had to do this. We're constantly telling ourselves why we've done something instead of focusing on sort of the impact of what we've done. It's not just about intent. It's about impact. If I am trying to manage my relationships and it's not going well, I don't get to say, well, I tried and, and it didn't work out. If I'm actually harming people, it's my impact that I have to look at. And that's why for adult children of alcoholics, addicts, and dysfunction, there's usually four steps that can really help you process this stuff. The first step is to explore your past history. Get rigorously honest about what happened to you, what your role was in it, all the thoughts and feelings and behaviors that came about as a result of it. Then connect the past to the present. How does this show up in my life today? How am I responding or behaving? What is actually connected to the past versus the present? Next step, challenge your internalized beliefs. Whether that belief is you're less than or you're grandiose or you need to manage or control or you're like me and you need to self-isolate and hide away and not contribute to relationships, <laughs> like whatever your belief is, you have to challenge that based on the past, based on the present, and based on what you want in the future. And then the last step is learning new skills. So this is incredibly important because it's the one area where I feel most of us drop off. We think, oh, I know this thing now. I have an understanding of it. I read a book. I totally get it. It's not just about that. It's about putting it into action because there is a difference between relief and recovery. I get relief when I read a book and I have some kind of advanced understanding about what happened to me. I get relief when, you know, I go to a meeting, even if it's an online Zoom meeting, I just drop in and I kind of get that hit, that little high that says, oh, I, you know, I know what I know. Everything I'm feeling is okay. I get that hit, but there's a difference between that relief and sustained recovery. 
because as I'm living my life and things are happening to me, those little blips of relief won't help me navigate big life changes. They won't help me show up long-term in my most important relationships. They won't help me make big decisions. And so it's understanding the difference between that and how inconvenient recovery can be, right? I mean, who wants to do this one, two, three times a week? Go to a meeting, talk to a sponsor, do an inventory, be of service. That's my favorite when I talk to newcomers and I, I talk about the importance of building self-esteem through esteemable acts. No one wants to do it. <laughs> Everyone's like, yeah, 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 but I don't need to do that part. Um, and it's the inconvenience that offers the recovery and goes far beyond the relief. Another thing that can be really helpful for adult children is the simple phrase, don't go to the hardware store for milk. And I've posted this on Instagram before and people are like, that's so dumb. It doesn't even make sense. Why are you posting that? <laughs> and all my beautiful little adult children um, knew exactly what I was talking about. And what that means is, we don't go to places that don't have what we want. If I want a communicative, safe, loving relationship, I don't go to someone who doesn't possess those things and demand it from them, like I'm robbing a store, and then get mad at them when they don't have it. Does that make sense? You know, don't go to the hardware store for milk. There's no milk on the shelves. Why are you going there? And why am I trying to manage or control a situation and force something that isn't there? That's probably one of the most profound lessons that you'll see over and over and over again in your life, whether that's even in intimate relationships, your family, workplaces. You can't ask someone to give you something that they don't have. So there's some work on acceptance there and saying, you know, I get to work on myself. If I want these things, I get to develop them in myself and maybe I will find it in someone else. But I can't force you to take on something that you don't want. Last week in my love letter, I talked about um, when the pressure drops in an airplane and you put your oxygen mask on first. And that was pretty important because I think when you grow up in an alcoholic home, you're programmed to take care of everyone else first and to put your needs last. And it almost forces you to become invisible. And so what this little story is telling you is you're not invisible. And if you don't fill your cup and take care of yourself first, you'll have nothing to give anyone else. And that's so important. And it's not a lesson that a lot of us were taught. We're taught to sacrifice everything and to, to give more than we have. And that's just not sustainable. HALT is an acronym that I love using and sharing about in here because I personally had no idea how much I needed it. And HALT is a mini inventory check-in you do with yourself and you ask, am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired when I'm having an emotional reaction to something? Because very often one of those things is flaring up and we've been taught not to practice self-care and not to identify what's actually going on. You know, the sky isn't blue, <laughs> like what I talked about earlier, and ignore all those things and think it has to be something way more complicated. But how often when we practice that does it boil down to, you know, I haven't slept in days. I'm exhausted. I'm lonely. I need connection. I need community. Um, I'm hungry. I'm just not taking care of myself. Or I'm angry about something that maybe hasn't happened in the moment, happened in the past, and wasn't resolved. And I'm taking it out on you. 
And those are some tools that can be really helpful for adult children of alcoholics and actually everyone. I mean, you don't need to be in some secret little club or have had extreme childhood wounding to develop new skills and work on yourself. And I wanted to say one more thing before I kind of dive into the love letter aspect of this podcast. I know a lot of adults who did a lot of work on themselves and their own addictions, and they have not apologized to their children. They have not apologized. And they overlook the importance of that and how validating that is to someone's experience. Because apologizing and making amends heals wounds. Even if it doesn't happen right away, it validates someone's experience. It lets them know you're alive, you're important, I see you, you matter, I did harm you, I know what I've done to you. And if you are in a recovery program where you've just stopped using a substance or engaging in a behavior and you're pounding on your chest and you're so proud of what you've done, but you haven't looked your children in the eyes and said, I am sorry. Have I harmed you in ways that I'm unaware of? Then you've really only done half the work. So that's my suggestion. And I don't suggest you do it prematurely. I suggest that you actually go through the process of doing an inventory and talking to someone you trust and processing your behavior and what you have done or contributed to someone else and really finding space within yourself where you feel comfortable apologizing and making amends and maybe receiving information that you're not comfortable with because maybe you were not conscious physically or emotionally of some of the wounding that you did and hearing it can be really challenging. So the name of this podcast is Love Letters and Mixtapes, and the inspiration for that was a desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear, whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. And if I was going to write another love letter to my younger self about being an adult child of an alcoholic and dysfunctional family, it would probably go something like this. Keep all the promises you made to yourself this year. It's not too late. You are forever birthing, living, dying, and resurrecting. The end is just the beginning. Let people see you, know you, and love you in your moments of imperfection. Self-love, self-respect, and self-esteem are often misconstrued as declarations of war by those who benefited from you living without all three. Find people who speak the same language and speak it often. Wear the inevitable changes, disruptions, detours, blessings, wins, and losses like a loose garment. There is not a single person on this planet who gets to determine your worth or your capacity. Surround yourself with people who reveal your potential instead of those who point out your limitations. Remember that the only thing you can do for another person is work on yourself. We learn by attraction, not promotion. Decide who or what it is that you most want to have a bigger experience with and show up for it or them in body, mind, and spirit. It's okay to lose yourself and take the journey of finding yourself again. Life is tricky. Be gentle in your self-discovery. Say yes when you want to. Use the word no as a complete sentence. If you're explaining something, if you're defending something, if you're justifying something, or if you're rationalizing something, just know that you're wrong because you never have to explain, defend, justify, or rationalize what's right. Keep what you have by giving it away. Trust that you have to give it away to even get it in the first place. Rest when tired, eat when hungry, and cry when you need to. There is nothing more powerful than being seen and heard. 
Use your words and trust your intuition. Trust God, clean house, and work with others. Chop wood and carry water. Live well and love easy. I believe in you. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. Check out this week's playlist on my personal Spotify account. And join me on Instagram at Love Letters and Mixtapes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio.